I'm Raelle Bell. And I'm Liz Ware. And you're listening to That's Brilliant, a podcast by the American Lighting Association. Recently, the American Lighting Association staff group chat had a flurry of activity when a magazine article came out in New York Magazine. And the title of the article is, There's Something Off About LED Bulbs. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So there was a lot of, you know, really relevant and good information Mm -hmm. in that article and Mm -hmm. things that come up all the time, I think, in our daily discussions. And I know that they're real concerns that, you know, need to be addressed with LEDs. As I said, there was there was some dramatics, but (laughs) that's good writing for (laughs) you. Well, and part of what the article talked about, which which we'll talk about with our guest is There is a difference between a glowing hot wire, which is an incandescent lamp, and a little computer, which is an LED lamp. And some of the learning curve switching from hot things glow to computers need certain levels of power and voltage to operate correctly, it's a bit of a learning curve. Not to mention the associated costs that go into making all the technical aspects work versus (laughs) something a little more rudimentary. And we're used to getting our tungsten hot glowing light bulbs in the bargain bin for, you know, 99 cents a pop. And there is a bit of a a difference. There's a bit of a leap. LEDs can do more. They can last longer. They can produce high quality light, but they do cost more up front. Yes, and so we're going to dive into all of that with our guest today, Don Piper. Don has a very strong background in lighting design in the film and fashion industry. He's worked with the likes of Annie Leibovitz, um, Stephen Klein, and he's also worked for main lighting manufacturers like Acuity Brands, Legrand, and in his latest venture, he is the founder of Smash the Bulb which is Mm -hmm. a luminaire manufacturer, and um, they have some recognition from the Department of Energy, and they're focusing on manufacturing techniques and sustainable materials to address some of the issues that we're facing with lighting today. So very interesting and definitely uh, qualified to speak on this this subject. (laughs) Yeah, Definitely. Don is also associated with the Lighting Agora, which is a consortium of independent and award-winning lighting designers, consultants, and educators. And you can contact the Lighting Agora if you need a lighting instructor or a speaker or consultant or any kind of lighting expert. They've really got some top-notch people. Before we dive into our interview with Don, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Kitchler Lighting and Hinkley, for supporting this podcast. Hello, Don. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. As we mentioned earlier, there was a little bit of a stir over LEDs with (laughs) a certain article that came out. I think we all in the industry, we know there are concerns. There are things that we didn't have to deal with before LED lamps were in houses and the primary light source in many of our homes. But I know one thing you've covered a lot is the application issues related to that. So 
putting an LED replacement into a fixture maybe that was intended for an incandescent lamp at some point? What are some of the things that come up? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you can really blame Washington State for most of the problems. I'm just kidding. Washington, Washington State, the utilities there, they created a a rating system for what is the most ubiquitous lighting fixture in the world is the recessed ceiling camera. I remember seeing somewhere the average American home has over three dozen recessed ceiling cans in it. Wow. So what happened in Washington State was when you have cathedral ceilings and places where there's no attic, it's really important to keep a cold roof. So if you have any heat that comes up through like a, a can from a, from a lighting source, then what it would do in the winter time is it would melt the ice and water could get down underneath the shingles, re-ice afterwards when it's off and cause all kinds of damage to the roof. So they created this ICAT rated sealing system, which means you'd be able to insulate over the top of the can and it has to be airtight. The problem with that is you get a lot of heat buildup in these cans. Really what's happening the most is the electronics are failing. The phosphorus don't like the high heat either, but what's happening is you've got inside of these digital devices, which are LEDs and CFLs before, you have lots of components for electronics to make it work, and one of them is capacitor. So there's different types of capacitors, but they're big and they're cumbersome, and you're trying to put all these control pieces into the base of a bulb, in effect. So we went with the electrolytic capacitor. And the problem with the electrolytic capacitors is that it's an electrolytic fluid inside. And as you heat up the cans, they say for every 10 degrees Celsius that you go above 25 degrees C, where all these lamps are rated, you half the lifetime. There's been a lot of testing done inside of these cans where you're up to 85 C. So you're you're looking at these cascade effects happening as a, as a function of the thermal environment. So it's really a bad scenario, and there's really not much that can be done. We've wrestled the cost of the LED down so much that we're able to put a bunch of them in and just underdrive the crap out of them. So there's not a lot of heat issues because you're not really overdriving these devices. So that's one of the problems is with the Washington State ICAT rating, that got adopted by every single state in, in the union. That's kind of what happens with, with utilities. They just step and repeat what's happening with other larger utilities. And so that's the problem. We're, we're using these things inside of these uh, recessed ceiling cans, and we're getting really low lifetime where we're just getting catastrophic failures because the electrolytic fluids. But we're also getting color shifts as a function of heating up these phosphors that are on top of the LEDs. Now, a consumer listening to this might say, but wait, I thought the old incandescent light bulbs were the hot ones and that LED used all its power to make light instead of heat. So talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, the incandescents don't have any electronics inside of them. They're just a heat source, in effect. It can get up to 85C inside of a the PAR lamp, inside of a recessed ceiling can, and it doesn't matter. It's not going to affect the lifetime. Yeah, you put so them in ovens. People are fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. So the difference is, is that the, the incandescent puts off more heat, but it can also handle more heat because exactly. it's not an electronic. Exactly. Is there a design of recessed can that would adapt for this or not? Because the heat still needs to be kept away from the roof so you don't get ice dams. You know, that's, that's a great question because... 
In the early days of LEDs, we had to really dump a bunch of phosphor onto the LEDs to affect emission. So it was super sensitive to heat. And I saw some early adaptations where it was a huge heat sinks and also passive cooling. You'd see little blowers inside of these things trying to like get the heat out of the can. I've seen some, even some uh, like refrigeration strips. I forget what they're called. They're like, uh, that's a cool name. Anyway, it's, it's like a Peltier cooler or something. I'm not, I don't speak We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, but it's basically a, a little thin strip that you run a voltage across it and it cools down like a refrigeration unit. So you're actually keeping it cool. But I don't see any of that happening these days. You know, one of the things you see with the advent of edge lighting being so popular mm. and ubiquitous is you see these little it's basically they're cheating it, the look of a can by having a thin disc of an edgelet product that just sits flush to the ceiling or is slightly recessed in the electronics. So you get away from that whole issue with the can in that scenario. But those can be fairly glaring. And that's a problem that designers have. Is that correct or not necessarily? You know, it's all relative. You get 700 lumens out of a traditional A lamp, for example, in a small surface area, but it's recessed into a can, so you don't see it as well. Uh, And there might even be secondary lensing. Um, Mm -hmm. What's really interesting about the human visual system is that only at super low light levels does our visual acuity really take a beating. So... One of the things, like I'm kind of used to dealing with basic illumination levels in in commercial applications where you're in an office and you have to have 30 foot candles on on the work surface. But realistically, you know, we're going out to eat and we're reading menus with pretty small font in seven foot candles. And Mm -hmm. we could have four foot candles in our houses. So the ability to dim, which might be a nice segue, is really key with this technology because a lot of the times people don't need the full extent of the light unless they're elderly or they have specific tasks that they're doing where they need a lot of light. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's get into that dimming issue. I mean, I think one of the big things that people deal with LED lamps is flicker when they're dimming the product. So what's going on there? What can we do? So in a residential scenario, we've got a 120 volts, 110 volts as as the common denominator. But usually with LEDs, we're dealing with somewhere in the neighborhood of 36 volts. It could be 24 volts or 12 volts inside of one of these lamps. So there needs to be a step down of the voltage. So there's a transformer involved. And most of the time that there's a problem with flicker or with dimming is that there is some disconnect between the type of transformer that's being used and the dimmer signal that's trying to affect the change in this quantity of of the light. It's really difficult to understand as a consumer. You know, you go out and you look at a lamp and the information on the box and it says dimmable. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does that mean? You're not not necessarily going to be able to use a a standard phase cut dimmer. You might want to have some type of a digital dimmer, but there's a big consumer education gap uh, that is a problem for people. And it's it's really a shame because it would be as simple as saying, use this dimmer or this type of dimmer with this product. But people don't want to educate because they're afraid that 
people are going to say, no, it's, it's not worth, you know, it's not worth it. I'm too busy. I, I can't spend my weekends looking at what dimmer is compatible with my, with my LED, which is one of the reasons why I like solutions like the Philips Hue, because it's basically an entire ecosystem that is set up to create the desired product and it works through, you know, it's not, I don't want to walk around with my phone and have to dial up a dimmer switch on my phone, but the alternative is that I'm going to burn out my transformer and, you know, not be able to dim my system anymore, which is exactly what's happened in my kitchen, actually. Okay. <laughs> so it happens to everyone, is what you're saying? It happens to everyone, yeah. <laughs> So th- th- that's a good thing to bring up. If I'm a consumer and I know uh, a little bit, I know that there are compatibility issues and dimming and this and that, and you know, it might be easier to just throw in the towel. Does the industry need to do better or is there a simple rule of thumb we can give people to help them out so that when they're in the aisles of the store, they can they don't have to you know, get a PhD before they get out at the door with a box of light bulbs? I agree. I, I'm, and all of lighting is completely... Needlessly esoteric. It's, you know, take, for example, Lumen. I mean, there's a healthy percentage, I think, of lighting professionals couldn't tell you what a Lumen is. It's, it's really difficult to understand a lot of these concepts and wrap your arms around them. I think there's a disconnect between the perception of lighting as a disposable product and it being in the paradigm of LEDs, in, a, in effect, a durable good. And we have a sense that we need to be able to go inside a, a store and for $5 purchase a lamp that is going to replace the incandescent lamp, which is, you know, going to burn out after 700 hours. So that's a big issue. And I wonder if the government can step in to help facilitate, because they did that with CFLs. Do you remember when they first came out, the EPA came out with slogans about change a bulb and save the planet and... It only takes 13 seconds to save the planet or something crazy like Mm -hmm. that. You know, there's a perception issue. So my instinct is to say people need to invest in a product that's going to last for a long time, which is kind of what you get in a place like Europe, where it's not like the U.S. where the average person's moving every seven years. It's people are in their homes and they're staying there and they invest in the infrastructure in, in the lighting they're more willing to pay more money for for a fixture so that is one of the biggest disconnects i think right now is just that disposable versus durable good issue that was going to be one of my questions as part of the problem that like you say we've wrestled the price of leds down to a point where they're less desirable, that if we spent twice as much or even four times as much, they would really last those 10 years that we think they're going to last. Do the components in the more expensive ones really make a difference? And that's just what we need to be aware of? They really do. I think one of the issues is when you have multiple strings of LEDs inside of these lamps too, like there's, you get these thermal runaway issues where LEDs, and this might be a topic that that is not worth going down that road, but (laughs) LEDs are dynamic devices. They have different forward voltages for each device. And so when you have a string of, say, three, nominally three-volt LEDs, you can say, okay, I'm going to put it to a nine-volt driver, but it might be 8.9 volts or it might be 8.8 volts. And then if you've got another string that's 9.1 volts, you've got this scenario that's waiting to happen where you get 
an overflood of voltage going through one of those strings, burning out the other strings, which leads to a catastrophic failure. So, you know, you could put a passive device at the end of each one of these strings, like a MOSFET, that would basically say, okay, we can do current mirroring among these strings and make sure that these things last. But guess what? MOSFETs are expensive. Mm. So to answer your question, I think, yeah, there are a lot of things that we could do. There's a lot of money that we could that we could invest as consumers. But I think a lot of things are happening right now that could benefit because right now LEDs are less expensive than the FR4 board that they go on to. It's shocking how much the price has come down and the technology has changed specifically with uh, chip scale packages versus the early stage LEDs. There's a, there's an opportunity to change drive currents and have really great quality of light, specifically around the phosphorus selections that's, that we have at our disposal these days. And all phosphors aren't created equal. That's one of the other issues. You've got YAGs and TAGs, which are one of the early encapsulates for LEDs. The YAGs are, which is, uh, you know, like an Achia LED. It encapsulates the LED, and what it what it does is it, it's a phosphor technology, but it's because of its crystal structure, it's pretty bulletproof when it comes to heat and humidity. Mm. So that's another place where, yeah, we can invest in better LEDs from reputable manufacturers that have NLM80, and we could say, you know, big caveat emptor is, to, hey, be careful how you use this product. You don't want to do this, and but if you put it in... A table lamp, for example, this thing's going to last until the next, next ice age. <laughs> we'll get back to our conversation in just a minute, but first, a message from our sponsors. This year, Hinkley is celebrating a century of style. That's 100 years in business. Hinkley is proud to be a fourth-generation family company with the mission of providing customers with exceptional lighting and ceiling fan products. They understand the passion their customers feel for their homes and are dedicated to helping them realize their vision. Learn more about the company, including some incredible charity work they do, at Hinkley.com. Kitchler Lighting is more than just a lighting company. They're a bring people together company focused on strengthening and growing relationships. They're constantly innovating, creating on-trend designs, and delivering high-quality product. Learn more and find inspiration and ideas at kitchler.com. Yeah, so it's an issue with messaging the investment that we should be putting into lighting products now versus what we used to. And that's an issue that kind of spans across the industry. I mean, we deal with it with just how much of a building budget percentage goes towards putting lighting in a house. I mean, incredible, right? Yeah. So what we're saying is we need a whole uh, campaign to <laughs> educate people on this. Yeah, I think so. And I think that would definitely help, but it also helps to, you know, have interesting new technology that can address the issues of heat and the electronics inside of these lamps. And I think a lot of that is going to come out of just the trend towards circularity you know, most LED products these days are entombed. You can't get at the LED, and and that's a problem. It's a, you know, we want to be able to send these things back to a manufacturer, have take-back programs, and have these things be refurbished. And I think when you start dealing with products like that, then you give it an opening for readability in the lamp. It's not all of a sudden 
you know, entombed behind this plastic where heat can build up and all these issues can happen. One of the Crea lamps that I've seen is completely porous. You can kind of look into the fixture and, and see the LEDs at certain angles, but protected against glare. So there's definitely some areas for innovation out there. So we're still in a period of transition. We're going to have to keep running to keep up. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. It's one of those things where, you know, they talk about with doctors in medical school, how they only get about two weeks of nutrition education. So they really can't tell you about the best ways to prevent disease. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to architects, they're in the same boat. You know, I talked to a lot of architects and they say, you know, we only studied at lighting for two weeks during our entire four-year schooling. They're passionate about lighting. They really wish they knew more about lighting. But at the end of the day, when they put in a recessed ceiling plan, it's littered with little circles, you know, on six-foot uh, centers from one another. And it's a shame. A lot of it comes down to how do we want to build these homes in the future? And a recessed ceiling can is just a great way to distribute light evenly throughout the house. It's just, there's a lot of issues. Well, that's an inadvertent advertisement for trained lighting showrooms and ALA training for lighting showrooms. So <laughs> shop for your lighting there, go there. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, you know, one of the things that lighting is, when I first got into the industry, I talked to lighting designers and they talked about track lighting and it was like taboo. You know, track lighting is what people do that don't know how to how to light, but it's just sitting out there in 25C, 30C conditions. It's kind of a perfect place to have your lighting. So there, there are popular options out there that you can find at showrooms that can take away your your need for all these recessed ceiling cans. But there's a lot of the a lot of the built environment already has that up there, so it's. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the answer is, unfortunately. Yeah, when you figure it out, come to my house because uh, there's way too many <laughs> recess camps. <laughs> well, I live in Northern California and I, I got a mid-century modern house and it, there's windows everywhere. I've got like, it's tiny, but there's like 15 doors. And so we're, we're spoiled. We don't, the, our mm -hmm. need for light is like two hours a day. Uh, other than that, we're, we're pretty much set up. Sure. That's nice. So let's wrap up, but what one last thing do we need to know? Again, I'll point to the to the improvements in phosphor technology. When people talk about the quality of light, the warmth of the light, phosphors in the early days of LEDs were kind of crude. There was only a couple phosphors that you would mix together to get a certain spectrum of light, and you really had to put a lot of phosphor onto the device to affect the emission. Today, phosphor technology is super sophisticated. And basically any color you want, you can get. Mm. And you can mix it to get warm CCTs that are, you know, there's great warm dimmable LEDs products that when you dim them, they actually warm up like an incandescent lamp, which is awesome. And there's basically any option out there for you as far as the quality of light. And that's one of the issues with dealing with consumer products as well is because, you know, there is this perception that it has to be below a certain price. But if you want to pay for like sophisticated phosphors, they're out there 
And the nice thing about it is we don't need to dump on phosphor like we used to. You can these really thin films of them, which leads to super high efficiency and really beautiful color quality. Yeah. Let's actually, um, because I've actually, I've talked to some people recently that don't understand phosphor and what that is in an LED um, and how that's what affects the color and the light output. Yeah. So if you could go kind of back to the basics and explain quickly what that is for people. Yeah, it's interesting. So the human eye has two color channels. It has a blue and yellow channel and a red and green channel. They're called opponency channels. And basically they work like a uh, teeter-totter, if you will. Um, and that's interesting. One of the things that affects circadian lighting. But with LEDs, we use the blue and yellow channel basically to create this light. And the blue is basically a blue LED at the base. So if you go to an LED and you knock off the phosphor and plug it in, it's going to be pure blue. Phosphor is some mix. It, it's, it's basically a, a, an inorganic garnet that is doped with a rare earth element to create a color, and usually it's yellow. So what you're doing with white light is you got this blue LED and the yellow phosphor, and like the scale, you create this perfect balance until you find white light. And there's all kinds of nuances you can have with the yellow. Like the yellow could be yellowish green, or it could be yellowish orange, and you can get all these different mixtures to give you the color temperatures that you want. But at the base, it's blue LED with a yellow phosphor covering it, and that's why they look yellow in the off state. What's interesting is that there's this other channel that I was talking about, the red and green channel. And if you know what V lambda is, it's basically a bell-shaped curve that talks about how the eye is sensitive to, to different parts of the spectrum, and it's super sensitive to green. So basically, a little bit of green light and your eye is activated that sees. So with this red and green mix, you've got not only this super high efficiency from the green, but you've got this heavy red content, which is really important for people. Like red is really interesting. When I'm looking at a light, basically the first thing I'm doing is putting my hand in front of it. And I'm looking at my the vascularity in the hand and trying to see if it looks real or if I look creepy, like uh, kind of ghoulish with my skin tones. So the red and green is a really interesting concept. And Cree actually created one of their earlier products, which the commercial products was this mixture of red and green. And as a result, their product was like 40% more efficient than any product on a market back in the day. It was like 2008, they came out with a downlight, I believe. And it was the highest efficiency at that point was 40 lumens per watt or something like that. And all of a sudden they were at 80 lumens per watt and everybody's like, oh my God. <laughs> But uh, it's it's hard because the red LEDs, which are really inexpensive too, because of all the you know indicator lights that they've been in forever, they tend to fail faster than the green. So you have to have this really careful feedback loop between the green and the red, which with thermistors inside of the lamps that are basically saying, okay, your red's dying, so dial down the green, and that that's difficult. But that that's another opportunity to potentially do with future products. There's probably some IP protection, so. But yeah, that's basically the LED. It's blue and yellow, but they're actually coming out with some new green LEDs. They're really trying to come up with something that'll that'll be a great product that gets around the IP. So I'd look for that in the future. Interesting. Thank you so much. This was great. I learned a lot. 
I'm actually going to get a glossary from you that we will put in the show notes for people. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Liz and I aren't going to lie. Some of that was was over our head, but <laughs> but it won't be by the time we've got the glossary put together. So we'll get that all sorted out. Thank you so much. This was terrific. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, so I'm not kidding about the glossary. We're going to take some of these terms that went over our heads and put them in the show notes for anyone who is in a similar boat so that you can catch up on some of the some of the details of what Don was telling us. Yeah, I might have missed a couple things here and there, but I think I got the gist of everything he was mm-hmm. saying. And one of my biggest takeaways is all of these issues are relevant. They're all true. They're all things that people have definitely experienced and can experience with LED lamps, but there are also solutions and we also need to consider, you know, the difference in product that we're dealing with now. Like we said, it's it's a computer. We're dealing with a lot more complex things here and that could require a bigger investment. And if you make that investment, you could end up being happy there. You're not always going to end up being upset with your LED lamps necessarily. Yes. Some of the issues, the transition, we're used to a light bulb being a light bulb and you screw it in and you don't need to think about it and it burns out and you screw in another one. But if you actually plan and design a more sophisticated lighting plan that actually pays attention to keeping the volts even in the different strings, I mean, that's more upfront work. And we need to know that we need to look for that. We need to know that things are different now and we need to put a little bit more engineering effort, design effort into getting a a system that actually works. And that is, again, where those lighting showrooms come into play and why we are so adamant that you need to work with a lighting expert, a trained expert in a lighting showroom, (laughs) even from the smallest thing of purchasing a new bulb or something. I mean, don't be afraid to go into a lighting showroom and speak to a trained professional and discuss what you need and end up with something you're going to be happy with instead of something that you come home and doesn't work out. Absolutely. Uh, For those of you in the lighting industry, Conferences coming up in the fall. Go to alaconference.com to find out more. We're putting more and more information up every day. So keep an eye on that for the schedule. And we hope to see you there in uh, Lake Tahoe. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. Also, be on the lookout for um, information on our training sessions we have in June. We actually have Tom Fetters, who is the founder of the Lighting Agora, is coming to speak to our members and all Lightovation attendees in June in Dallas. He's going to talk about lighting for the aging eye. And in a staff meeting, uh, it was impressed upon me that lighting for the aging eye isn't for 90-year-olds. It is for 45-year-olds. It is for... We're all getting older every day, Liz. That's the beauty of life. (laughs) So that'll be a great session. Yeah, get your, you know, get the lighting in place before it's too late and before you really need it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so we're looking forward to all of that. Great education and training. As always, you can go on to alamembers.com and go through any of our webinars. Um, we've been doing some more advanced training sessions with some lighting experts. And there's so much to benefit from there. So we hope you will check it out. 
thank you again to our sponsors, Hinkley and Kitchler Lighting, for supporting the podcast. Stay brilliant.